Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 264 of the podcast. It is September 26, 2016. My guest today is a friend from here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Tyrone Butler. He is the LSS managing partner at his company, Butler Active Business Solutions, LLC. He has a background in the Air Force. He predated me at Dell Computer in the 1990s, and he's been doing a lot of work all over the world with Lean, Six Sigma, and other methodologies for improving software and uh, project delivery like ITIL. Tyrone is one of the first to hold a certification called the Certified Executive Master Black Belt through Michael J. Harry, PhD. Now, Tyrone and I, I think we first met back in 2010 when we were both part of a local Texas lean group that went down to visit the Toyota plant in San Antonio. It was my first visits there. Um, I blogged about that. There's a couple posts linked. If you go to leanblog.org slash 264, you can find um, Tyrone's LinkedIn page, his company website, and other links there as well. So in this episode, we're going to share some of uh, he's going to share some of his experiences and stories, including a time he gave uh, a presentation to Michael Dow himself, some of his thoughts on the combination of Lean and Six Sigma, and other methods that he's seen work in software development and um, other settings. So I hope you enjoy the discussion, and uh, as always, thank you for listening. Well, again, today our guest is Tyrone Butler. Tyrone, thanks for being a guest. Hey, uh, my pleasure, Mark. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, you're a well-respected friend and uh, a leader in the industry, and anything that I can do for you and any information I can share, I'm open I'm open to share with you. Well, you're, you're very kind, and I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think we'll get to talk about some different things, different topics today than we normally cover here on the podcast. So I'm excited about that and to hear your perspectives. Maybe if you could just start off, you know, give us kind of a, just a good uh, background introduction to yourself and, and your career just to set some context for everyone. Uh, sure. Um, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. I promise under 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. I know some people could get long-winded with this stuff, but I'll, I'll be really simple. Uh, as you said before, I'm Tyrone Butler. I am the managing partner of my own business transformation form, firm uh, called Butler Active Business Solutions. What we do there is we do Lean Six Sigma instruction and technical business transformation services. As a partner, not as a consultant, we uh, definitely want to have skin in the game with you. And uh, how did I get here? How did I get to this point where I am? Started out in the U.S. Air Force. I'm a veteran, about 10 years service. I worked on avionics systems, which is pretty much electronics on aircraft. And while I was in the service uh, of the Air Force, I worked on F-16s, A-10s, and E-3A AWACS. So the AWACS were the surveillance planes before there was the uh, satellites and the Internet and all that. (laughs) We had to fly over the uh, other countries to see what they're doing. We couldn't just look at the uh, satellites. So kind of old school guy. And uh, how did I get into... uh, the Lean Six Sigma, well, I won't get into that, but I'll continue my skill set. Uh, well, I'll get here, into that. And, and before we get into that, I was just curious to hear a little bit more you know, about your background. You know, For one, thank you for your, your service in the Air Force. But was, and maybe you were getting to this, but was, was the Air Force or DOD um, doing anything yet with Lean and Six Sigma when you were uh, in active duty? 
No, and that's a good question. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, shoot, man, you're talking about 1990s. I'm an old school guy. Mm -hmm. And back in the 1990s, the Air Force uh, barely knew how to uh, fly planes really well. And we were always looking for the next new technology to get a uh, competitive advantage over the, um, the other guys. And uh, as far as continuous improvement, actually, I was involved with um, mishap prevention. And I, I, now that you mention it, that would be the closest thing to like risk management or continuous improvement where um, anytime we had an incident where we would have a plane go down or a plane broke because of uh, some unknown issue, we would have an investigation and they would call that a mishap. And we didn't really have a prevention of mishaps, but we had investigation of mishaps. So there really was no continuous improvement. We were just, when things happen, we investigated it, made a report, and moved on. So to your point, no continuous improvement. Uh, and and, and right. that sounds sometimes like healthcare, where, you know, a quality group is focused on measures or, you know, investigating. But, uh, you know, part of the challenge, you know, trying to create a lean culture in healthcare, I don't know how it was in, in the Air Force, but, you know, we're trying to shift beyond just an investigation that ends up either you know, blaming an individual or saying, well, the uh, the solution is to go and retrain that person or retrain everybody. I, I would argue that's not really um, good preventative root cause analysis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seemed like there were, there were some opportunities and, and maybe the Air Force has, has progressed since then. Oh, yeah. And uh, I have some friends that have actually developed some of the uh, new Air Force standards for Air, actually, the Air Force has a standard for Six Sigma that's out there, and uh, I believe it's combined Lean and Six Sigma, but there is an Air Force continuous improvement standard that's out there. It's been created by uh, several people that I know uh, that were in the active duty. And then, um, so yeah, so I would say of late, within the last 10 years, is when the military started embracing it. And I'll tell you what they embraced. They embraced Lean first. Because of that waste thing, they they you know the military is very famous for you know the waste. Uh, you know we talk about you heard about the uh, toilet seats that cost you know 900 bucks. So uh, so in the inventory control is where the uh, military first took kind of the uh, lean approach, and then as they started to realize the gains, especially with troop movements, you think about it, you got to move 5,000 people. And you don't have a system, a systematic process to do that. And if there's a lot of waste in it, it's going to take a lot of time to move, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people to Iraq or wherever. Yeah. So, so that, that lean was very much, uh, you know, a big thing for the uh, military to take on. And then over time, the Six Sigma got involved to start, you know, optimizing things. So, uh, so to add back into my skill set, so where did I start? My career started really... Uh, in the world of Six Sigma. I, I am a Lean Six Sigma Executive Master Black Belt. And what the executive means in front of the Master Black Belt means I was actually directly trained by Dr. Michael Harry himself, who is the co-creator of Six Sigma. So I got a chance to spend a couple of weeks with him in Arizona and uh, learn additional skill sets in order to work with the executive leadership. Great course. And then um, I'm also an ITIL practitioner and instructor. I'm actually certified with Exxon and Aquarius, which are the bodies, uh, the certifying bodies. And um, so I do a lot of ITIL instruction as well as Lean Six Sigma. And I'm also an ergonomics auditor for both industrial and office work environments. And I know that 
that would be, you know, something healthcare would definitely look at, especially from a lean perspective. When you start looking at trying to do um, a lot more with less because we're becoming more lean, sometimes we can overtax the human capabilities uh, and force repetition and posture. And I know within the manufacturing world, it was prominent, especially when I worked at companies like AT&T, you got people lifting 60-pound reels all day long for eight hours. They complain about back problems. So these are work-related issues, and due to the amount of forces they're lifting, the amount of repetitions they're doing a day, and the awkward postures of bending them back, they also you know, created workers' comp issues. And back in the 80s, uh, ergonomics was uh, really big, and in the 90s, and when I started doing it at AT&T, that was one of the reasons they hired me at AT&T is because of my ergonomic experience. And um, so that's pretty much me. So uh, yeah. I do the uh, Six Sigma, the Lean, ITIL, ergonomics, and I've um, been doing this for quite some time. Since 1996, I started out at Dell Computer. That's where I first got my Six Sigma training. I was an industrial engineer. We had a new VP from Allied Signal, Roy G. Perry. He showed up uh, and already knew about uh, Lean and Six Sigma because he used it at Allied, and Allied already made uh, millions and millions of dollars doing it. So he brought the methodology over to Dell, and I was one of the first 10 people to be trained at Dell, and I remember kicking and screaming because I didn't want to go to this thing. I was one of those arrogant engineers, young and, as they say, young and not so smart, <laughs> and I thought I knew it all. And, and Mark, I didn't want to do Six Sigma at first. I'll be honest. I was kicking and screaming, but after I learned it and I learned the Six Sigma, I realized that at my first project saved the company $1.3 million. And at that point in time, since it was so new, we got a chance to present to Michael Dell personally in front of his board of directors. And that was such a thrill. So it was 10 of us, and each one of us saved approximately $1 million each. And I'll never forget Michael Dell's face. He said, 10 guys? $10 million, and, and, he, and he said to me, he said, Tyrone, he said, what are you going to show me right now? I said, well, I'm going to show you all this Six Sigma methodology, starting with define, measure, analyze, improve, and control, and I'm going to walk you through how I got this project done. He said, how long is it going to take? I said, about 10 minutes. He said, no, don't do it. I said, why? He said, you ever watch Jerry Maguire? I said, yeah. He said, show me the money. And he screamed, and he screamed at me. And when this guy screamed at me, I, I remember I, I literally went to the last page of my presentation, and it said, savings, $1.3 And then everyone on his board of directors said, all right, and started screaming and jumping around the room. And then the next – I was the first guy, so the next nine people – went to the last slide and said, hey, Michael, 1.5. Hey, Michael. So at the end of the day, you know, $10, 12000000 million in savings. And Michael immediately said, Tyrone, you're not an industrial engineer anymore. From now on, you're a Six Sigma regional project leader. I said, what? Yeah. I said, man, I'm, a prost I'm an industrial engineer. I want your dimension, a line of business. He said, you were. Now you're doing this. And you 10 are going to be my leaders, and we're going to do this across the company. That's how Lean Six Sigma, how Six Sigma was born. Yeah. At Dell. 
Uh, well, so and 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 there's a lot. Um, I, I want to kind of go back and touch on different aspects of what you introduced there because I, th I think we can take deeper dives in a lot of different topics there. Um, listeners might not realize part of the shared connection. Um, even though Tyrone and I never met, you know, I was I was a young know-it-all engineer <laughs> at Dell in the <laughs> late '90s, 1999 to 2000. I, I remember Roy G. Perry. Uh, in, in manufacturing leadership, you know, I met met him a couple of times, and you know, I went through Six Sigma Green Belt training when I was at Dell. I, I never got certified as as a Green Belt, but you know, to me, Dell was an interesting company because it was not a Toyota production system style company. Um, people would sometimes call Dell lean because they had really low inventory levels and they had very high velocity flow, and, they, and there were certainly some things Dell did well. Um, that led to their success, but it w it wasn't a lean culture, and that was one of the things that frustrated me uh, about mm -hmm. my about my time there. But fellow industrial yeah. engineer, fellow Dell guy, at least uh, back in the day. But I was going to ask you to kind of dig into, or at least you know, what were some of the details of of that project, and uh, the the secondary part of that question. The same thing happens with lean sometimes, where. You know, we're focused on process and quality and all sorts of other measures, but a lot of organizations traditionally really, really focus on cost and the bottom line. So was, was there a quality improvement element of your project that led to the cost reduction? Or I'm just curious to hear more about that. Oh, yeah, it was actually it was a very cool project. I'm, I'm actually I'm very excited about that project because it was uh, one of Michael Dell's biggest thorns or pains in his side. Michael Dell had this problem called missing, wrong, and damage. You probably heard of that mm -hmm. metric while you're there. Yes. It's the biggest metric running. So missing, wrong, and damage. Let me explain to some of the listeners what it was. Missing was at they had an area called the boxing line. And the boxing line was the last step when you make a computer. So if you can imagine, imagine how you make a computer, I give you the simple steps. First step is to get the chassis. So you get the chassis, which is the enclosure. And you get the enclosure, you, you put it in the front of the line. Now, imagine a straight pipe. So as the chassis moves down a straight pipe, you're adding stuff to it. So when people say that they make computers, they're not really making it from scratch. They don't make the metal. A lot of the chassis come from China or somewhere in the middle uh, over in Asia. And when we get the, the uh, chassis, what happens is we start adding pieces to it like a Lego, like you're building a Lego car. And all you do is just put the blocks together. We yeah. do the same thing. So what we do is we add in the motherboard. The next step is to they prep the motherboard and they install it. After you get the motherboard in, then they start going into what they call a, a kitting area. Inside the kitting area would, would be where you would have little kits that would marry with the chassis. So you would have a tray that had a box full of parts that go in the system. And then you'd have this chassis sitting right next to it. Then it would move into what they call a cellular build cell. When it went into a build cell, there would be two people there, one on each side of the table, and they would have their own individual tasks based on work instructions. So they look at the work instructions. One person was in charge of putting in the hard drive. Another one would be put in the circuit card. And by working simultaneously, within minutes, they can have a full, ready-to-go computer completely assembled. Once they assemble it, they kick it out. It goes to testing. It's got to work. So now that they put all these electrical connections together, they have to test it. So they go to, uh, 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 I think it's a first self-test one. And then once they go to self-test one, after it passed, 
Then it goes to installing the software. They go into the burn racks. After you burn it in through the network, because they have all of the, the image of your software imaged in already, put in the burn racks, out of the burn racks. Then it goes into the boxing area. The boxing area is where all the cardboard boxes and the foam that put your computer together. Now you get what they call accessories. You start getting your keyboard, your mouse, your CD drivers, and whatever uh, little extra introductory placard that goes with the, the one, two, three steps on how to install your computer. You get that accessory stuff. Missing along with damage was right at boxing. There was a line that was um, that had pick zones. They call it a PTL, a pick to light system. And you get a red or green light. You'd have to press the button. And if you press the button, uh, it would uh, let you, the lights would light up first to let you know what to pick. So you'd have like uh, 15 pick zones. And if you're in zone number one, whenever the box got in front of you, that light would light up of what parts to pick. So in pick zone one, you might have nine different locations. But only location one and location five will light up. That means for that particular system, pick one part of one and one part of five, place it in the box. But the th problem was you got to turn around because the picks, the pick parts are back of you, but the box well, is in front of and, you and, and going along the line. And that's also <laughs> not really good ergonomics. but that's I Oh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I still got videos of that thing, Mark. I, I, I got to share that with you. I got some videos from old dude. Old school uh, Dell back in the 90s. I still got video. Oh, and I wow. did some video analysis of this thing. So anyway, at the end of the day, this turning around thing made a problem. Because as the boxes went by, and actually it was cross-pollination as well, Mark, because it was a double-sided line. We had people putting in the same box on the left side and the right side. So two people were trying to put stuff into the same box. And all the boxes look alike. So what does that tell you? Yeah. They would turn around, the box would move, and they put the wrong stuff in the wrong box. Yeah. So you know what that would do? That would create what they call a missing. So the way this thing would work is if I got two boxes in front of me, if box A is supposed to have a CD, but if the person to the right of me pulled that box, when I turn around, instead of putting the CD in box A, I put it in box B. I'll never know until the customer calls the call center and yeah. says, hey, I'm missing this thing. So there was no way to capture a failure in line. Right. So the only way we can do it was using a, uh, a, a system, uh, one of those uh, quality inspection systems. And we, what we had was a mill standard, I think it was uh, 1, 5, and 20. And based on a 1, 5, and 20 sampling plan, if you look at one box and if you find something mixing, you got to check the next five in a row. And if you don't see anything, you can let it go. But if you see something, you got to check the next 20 in a row. So if you get one hit, you got to look at 100% of 25 boxes, which will slow the production down to a standstill. Yeah. So you see how this – so that was a problem Michael was faced for 10 years. And then when I got certified as a black belt – well, I didn't get certified, but when I got trained as a black belt – Michael Dell went to Roy Perry and said, okay, if this Six Sigma stuff works, put somebody on this missing wrong and damage and drive that down. Yeah. And I, and I was the guy. And he said, okay, so I won't have at it. So the problem was, here's the problem, Mark. There was two divisions. There was the Optiplex division, which was desktops, 
and for major corporations such as American Airlines and all that. Yeah, that's where I where worked. Yeah. You were not the players. They had one configuration that would freaking, they'd make a thousand of them, one configuration. What I mean by configuration is one style of computer and, you know, one hard drive like this, one card like that, so on. Yeah. So it's a cookie cutter. Dimension, every computer was a custom computer ordered by some person in a business, somebody at their house, or whatever. So you talk about custom build, and there was no two computers that were alike. So think of the variation challenge. Think of the complexity. So Dimension had more complexity in each system than Optiplex had. Right. So with that being said, the missing, wronging, and damage issues in Optiplex were very minimal. And the ones in Dimension were incredibly high. So I remember in a meeting with Roy Perry, he said, Tyrone, look at Optiplex over there. They're kicking your butt. You find a way to reduce missing, wronging, and damage. I said, but look, it's not apples to apples comparison. Yeah. There's more complexity in my system. He said, doesn't matter, Tyrone. Are you an engineer? <laughs> yeah, fix it. Yeah. So he told me, don't cry, don't whine, fix it. So I used the Six Sigma, and basically, you want to know what, Mark? I didn't even use Six Sigma, really. I actually used Lean, and I'll tell you why I believe it was a Lean project. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll explain why I believe it was Lean. If you really think about it, Six Sigma is about looking at statistics and understanding the probability of something happening. And then based on that probability, you can optimize and reduce the amount of variation. But you have to be in the range of hitting a target. If you're not even close to hitting a target, statistics means nothing. Right. Got it? <laughs> so we weren't close to hitting our missing wrong damage problem. We weren't even close. We were like... We were like five times higher than what we were supposed to be. So I needed some stabilization. So what I really did was I looked at the process using a combination of ergonomics and some lean. And I didn't know I was doing lean at the time, but I was. So here's how I did it. First step, Mark, was video what you're doing. I remember when I worked in ergonomics at AT&T, they said that the body movements are so quick and your eye fixations are so quick, the human body can't keep up with, up with what they're doing with a pad and pen. So I recorded it with a VHS, yeah. and I went back to my office, and I watched it frame by frame by frame. And I found one problem. I found that when the person turned their back on the left side to get the part, the person on the right side would wind up moving the box on them, putting a new box in front of them, and they would never know they weren't in the same box. Yeah. Ugh. So what I did was I said, I got an immediate improvement. Let's reduce the uh, opportunity for making a defect by, uh, you know, it's one of the seven deadly ways is defects. So what I did is I made the line one-sided. Instead of two people in one box at one time, now it's one person in a box. Reduce the complexity level. Guess what? 20% improvement, but I wasn't done. So see, the, what I wanted to show here and to the, to the viewers, leading in Six Sigma isn't always a home run. It's, it can, three base hits can make a home run. Yeah. So my first base hit was to make the line single-sided. The next base hit was I said, okay, where are these problems coming from? I looked at the video again, and when I looked at the video, it came down to what I call visual acuity. A lot of my other engineers laughed at me. He said, Tyrone, what the heck is visual acuity? I said, well, 
whenever you're looking at the box, that's your target. You want to put in put a part in there, and when you turn around, that's your source. I said maybe you're picking the wrong source and putting it in, or you can't get the target box. So target so really there's two problems. Target acquisition, which is being able to locate where you need to put it, and then there's source acquisition to make sure you're picking the right stuff. So there's really two problems in play. I said let's make it so that we can pick the right stuff first, then we'll work on a target later. Sure enough, one of the biggest problems was Windows 95 and Windows 98, they were cross-pollinating them. Guess what? They were right next to each other inside the pick line. I said, why don't you separate Windows 95 and put it at level at section 5 and then put Windows 99 in a uh, number 1 section. Right. So now they're about three feet away from each other. Just by segregating and separating those two, guess what? Defects went down. Tyrone got another 10% improvement because that was one of the top hitters for people calling in because you think about it, Windows is something people are going to want to use to back up their systems and they won't call in as much for a tech sheet or a, C, uh, you know, a network card CD right. but the operating system they're going to call in for. So that was a number one. So by the way, I did a Pareto right. chart to find out what was the number one hitter, by the way. So I just want to jump in and say what you're describing about, you know, picking items from those racks is very similar to a process in a pharmacy of a pharmacy technician picking medications off of a rack and, and shelves and bins. And when hospital pharmacies alphabetize the medications and you have the five milligram dose of a medication right next to the 10 milligram dose of the medication, it's way too easy for people to pick the wrong dose or the wrong medication with a similar name. Uh, a pill will fall in the right pill will fall into the wrong bin. So there's a combination mm. of, you know, I think error proofing, um, focus on, on the process, making it easier for people to do the right thing, not just ergonomically easier, but but making it easier um, to, to do the right thing is, I think, you know, respectful of the employees. To me, that's what makes it a lean culture instead of just lecturing them. Be careful. Well, human factors and, uh, you know, helps us realize that, uh, you know, people make mistakes and, and we slip up. And so it's great to see pharmacies kind of rearranging their medications in, in a similar way to what you described. Wow, and thanks for sharing that, Mark, because I didn't realize that in pharmacy. I, 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 I saw that, but I didn't make the direct connection. That's why it's great talking to you like this, yeah. because now I see what I did in manufacturing could really correlate or it could really transfer to the healthcare in the uh, pharmacy. So really what I was doing, you're right. I was doing some pokeyoka, uh, pokeyoke mm -hmm. where I was out there doing that within this picking system but i didn't know they call it that back yeah. then i just thought i was doing the right thing well, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I mean there's you know there's a gray area between good engineering and and lean um you know problem solving based on looking at the process with their own eyes or through video like you're describing um right. you didn't require six sigma formality and and i think that's i think no. that's fine not every i think you and i are in agreement not every problem requires that but at the same time, you know, I think sometimes Six Sigma people say incorrectly, well, you know, lean doesn't involve data. Well, sure it can. Or, you know, I mean, lean can be a scientific improvement 
process um you know that we you know need to find the right balance and you know when when I was at Honeywell you know I was working on an inventory problem that we had in one manufacturing area and I was kind of going about it through a lean process looking at demand looking at data looking at change over times and the inventory sizing and you know we we were not making customer deliveries so we needed to make changes you know right away one of my colleagues was going through Six Sigma certification and she was spending months and months crunching the data. And I asked her one day, like, when are you going to help? When are you going to take action? You know, the, customer, <laughs> the customer is suffering. Like, I know you need to get certified and belted, but like, come on. Yeah. You know, and that wasn't, that wasn't yeah, her fault. It, That's what she was being taught to do. And I'm not I, saying I all Six Sigma is like that either. But Yeah. No. And, and Mark, believe it or not, I'm a very strong advocate of lean. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, just going to the lean story. How I got into lean, I, I was kind of pushed there too. I've been I've been almost pushed my whole career. It turned out well at the end, but people would push me in. And uh, so that kind of leads to, you know, how I got involved in, in the whole lean Six Sigma game. Like I just told you, um, Michael Dell pretty much pushed me into Six Sigma. He said, hey, man, you know, you saved some money and uh, we want to do this everywhere. And we wind up doing it everywhere at Dell. And uh, now, as far as the lean, where that came in for me, at Dell, there were some lean guys. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you knew one. Man, his name escapes me today. But uh, one, of my, one of the top lean guys, he was at Dell. He actually teaches at Villanova. Mm-hmm. He teaches uh, some lean coursework there. Yeah. So anyway, um, this guy, we used to bump heads at Dell. Remember, I was in the early 90s. You got there later. So I was right. one of the those guys there. So... Uh, this guy was in the supply chain. That's where Dell was really excited about lean was in the supply chain right. because these guys are like the inventory management gurus. I mean, when it came down to how many we need to have of this, how many chassis we need to have on hand, how much safety stock, these guys were able to do some just in time. And one of the biggest things that really got me excited about lean was the supermarket. Mm-hmm. This dude came in and said, Tyro, man, we're going to have a supermarket. I'm like, what? We're going to have like, you know, <laughs> mangoes here. We're going to have, you know, cucumbers. What are you talking about? Supermarket. Had no idea. He said, well, this supermarket concept is where just like in a supermarket, a customer comes up, they only want to get three cucumbers, they get three cucumbers. But we have only enough inventory to where they don't run out. What do you mean enough? Well, we actually look at how much is there and how much they consume. So you look at the numbers, yeah, we actually look at what they consume and we track it and manage it and we do it in real time. I said, wow, what a concept. The old concept was the stockpile. We say, how many uh, chassis we need? I don't know, but you better have 10 million in the backyard or whatever, <laughs> so we need them. So rather than having 10 million chassis in the back and trailers, this guy said, we only need to have maybe a 10, a, a thousand. You mean from ten million down to a thousand? Yeah, because you only roll through, you only turn a thousand in a month. So all we gotta do is make sure that replenishment happens. Are you serious? Yes, but what if our suppliers choke out on us and they don't deliver? You know what? What we can do is have a safety stock of X amount, but just don't stockpile anymore. Yeah. By taking away that stockpiling, they'll save millions of dollars. So these guys walked around with like golden shoes and golden underwear and everyone thought they were the big time and i and i'm sitting here six sigma remember i wasn't turning over those big savings like these guys so i wouldn't say i was jealous of them but i wanted to know more because we were competing for resources 
So when we go on a line, I'd say, okay, we're going to improve line one. We're going to reduce the cycle time here. Then lean would come over later because there were two groups set down. There was a lean group and a six sigma group. We were like Army and Navy. Yeah. We worked for the same. We worked for the same. <laughs> uh, you know, nation, but we had a lot of rivalry and we had some. You know, intelligent camaraderie. Put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, long story short, we we kind of hated each other, but we loved to get results. So we were in competition. And then finally, the VPs and the CEO came down and said, "You know what? There's a trend going on now where Lean and Six Sigma are combined because Lean removes the waste, Six Sigma optimizes, but you're both going to the process operations asking for human resources to sit in meetings. One guy said he sat in a Lean meeting for this tax time reduction, then he sat in a Six Sigma meeting right after that asking for the same improvement. Mm. Why don't you guys have one meeting?" And give us one fix. Yeah. And that's how Lean Six Sigma was born at Dell. Yeah. And, you know, when I was there, you know, there were a number of people that came from the auto industry and, you know, people had been hired in out of um, University of Michigan and, and MIT and other programs mm -hmm. where, you know, people came in with, um, you know, experience with Lean or passion for Lean. There was a guy working at Dell, who is the son of uh, one of the famed Toyota people who maybe still is active today, Mr. Oba. Uh, his son was was pretty young, like right out of grad school. He wow. was there. And yeah, there were individuals with lean experience, but the culture of the organization to me was was really not a lean culture. And that, that could be a whole different uh, podcast. I won't get too sidetracked on that. But um one thing I did want to dig into a little bit more, though, you mentioned uh, ITIL and, you know, we've we've only talked lean and software a few times on the podcast. Listeners can go back and find older episodes with both uh, Steve Bell and Mike Orzen on that topic. But you know, I think a lot of people listening don't know what that is. I barely know what that is. So can you talk about what that is, how it's used in software and, and how you see that relating to lean and Six Sigma? Yeah, uh, ITIL is Information Technology Infrastructure Library. Basically, it came from the UK in the 80s, and it was from the uh, Office of Government Commerce. Uh, back in the day, uh, they were having problems with keeping their IT costs very low. And so, you know, time is money, and money is time. And because their IT uh, had so much complexity and so much redundancy, and this is in the early 80s, sort of around the same time Michael Harry was doing the Six Sigma thing. So this is, you know, very early time frame. So they were looking at how could they manage IT services and practices in a standardized way. And they kind of stole from uh, Deming and the PDCA. And they basically said, you know what, um, we'd like to complete services in a st strategic way. But, um, you know, what, what are we, what's the beginning? How do we start this thing? So based on plan, do, check, act, they said, you know what? Let's do something similar to that. So let's do strategy. So they actually have four major phases to ITAL. There's the strategy piece, which is we want to deliver a service. And I can explain it very simple with, uh, say you have, um, you have Green Mountain Energy, Mark. And yep. Green Mountain Energy wants to give you a new IT service called online billing. Now, online billing might be something good to do, 
but without following a ITIL framework, you might kick this thing off. Here's the traditional way they might kick this off. VP talks to some folks, hey, you think we should do online billing? Yeah, I think it's great. Do we have the, uh, the financial capability to pull this off? Yeah, do we have the capacity? Yeah, okay, let's do it. Uh, put your design team on it and have it done by next week and then everyone's gonna have online billing. That's traditional thinking. That's traditional IT and that still happens to this very day. If someone thinks it's a great idea, they put the resources and the people around it and they get it done. Well, that, that a lot of times creates a lot of problems because a lot of checks and balances in IT are not covered. So what they've done with this uh, ITIL best practices, because it's not a standard. A standard is something like ISO 20000, where they're actually mandating and they're certifying you to a body of requirements. Well, they say ITIL is very nice because it's non-prescriptive. Non-prescriptive meaning you don't have to do everything within the framework. You can pick and choose what works best for you. So within the best practices, like I said, phase one, strategy. Phase two, design. Phase one, I said in strategy, you're looking at is this the right thing to do? Uh, is it financially the right thing to do? And then they recently added in ITIL version three, over time, they realized they were missing the business relationship management piece of it. They were creating services. At the end of the day, they were pushing them out and the customers didn't like them, even though they had a framework to deliver. Yeah. So having a framework to deliver is great, but if people don't want it, it's, well, it's the VOC, Mark. They, they miss they, the VOC. Or it, it, <laughs> yeah. it reminds me of what you talked about with Dell. There could be features or functionality that's missing wrong or damaged, right? Exactly. You got it. Mark, you absolutely got it. And, and so what happened was even though the first version of ITIL versions 1 and 2 were great because it says – Remember, it had really, actually when it first started, it was like 30 books. It wasn't very uh, lean. There were 30 books that, pres that pres not prescribe, but actually describe things you need to do in 30 different books. And no one could keep up to, with all that. So it was very difficult and challenging. And I kind of learned through the 30 book technique. It was, it was way back in the day, it was di difficult. But over time, they consolidated it down into pretty much five books. So the five books cover, like I said, first piece is strategy, which is financial management's in there. You got your, um, yeah, you got your capacity management's in there. You got um, strategy management's in there. So this is where the executives live. The executives live right in that space where they decide, is this the right thing to do? And they have the BRM. Once they decide it's the right service to deliver online billing, then it moves to design. That's when all the right smart gurus and architecture people, they get together and they create this design that allows you to have online building. And they also look at, you know, things such as uh, business continuity management, you know, disaster preparedness and things of that nature. Once they've completed all that and they've created design, they can't just throw it over to operations. That's where a lot of companies get in trouble. They just go from design straight to ops. Now, there's a piece in between that that needs to happen called transition. That's where you have your change management, you have your, uh, your release management. This is where you decide, guess what? We already have an existing system. If we put a new change in there, will we break something? 
that's where risk management is there as well. If we put something new in there, what's the risk of breaking what we're doing today? Mm -hmm. So operations is your day-to-day -day things in your IT infrastructure and, and your, uh, your daily IT services you deliver. You don't want to break your day-to-day. But what happens often? IT comes in, they put in a new uh, application or add a new service, and everything goes haywire. So transition is what they call, uh, a, they have a change advisory board where they physically put a lot of smart people together and they say, you know what, we're going to introduce this new change. And changes have different levels. They have emergency changes. They have normal changes. They have standard changes. And based on the change you're going to make, every time you make a change, the topology is updated. Everyone knows about the change. Everyone agrees to the change. So nine out of 10 times, when you bring a new service to ops, it's already been pre-checked, pre-tested, and understood and released at a time where we want it. So basically, to summarize what I said, you have strategy, should we do it? You have design, make it happen so that we can do it. We got transition, how do we schedule the new service to get into ops? And then ops is the maintenance, the day-to-day -day maintenance to make sure the service actually does what it's supposed to do. And then you have service level agreements, you have service level management, all of that is within the ops. And here's the, here's the real key. After all that's done, those four phases, they added in part of the PDCA is the CSI. CSI sits under those four phases, which is continuous service improvement. Hmm. That's where the lean comes in, Mark. Right. That's where the Six Sigma comes in. So what I'm saying is ITIL really is an integrated continuous improvement system versus just an IT support system. It's an integrated continuous improvement. You're improving delivery of your IT services as well as optimizing it using the CSI. Yeah, and what I hear you saying, it's not like um, you know people talk about agile or other methodologies. This isn't about how to write code in a more maybe limited way, and maybe I'm being unfair to agile. But this is this seems like a much more holistic approach and methodology for um, kind of coming up with the with the initial idea launching and then maintaining and improving that service or software over time, right? As, and I like the way you did the cliff notes for me. Mark, you're excellent at that. I'm glad you're right there with me. <laughs> That's exactly what I said in a summary. <laughs> sure. Well, I just want to make sure that, that, that I'm hearing you right. So you're, you're doing a good job of giving the longer um, explanation of it. But, hey, um, one other topic I want to get into a little bit before we wrap up here. You know, we've talked about this. Uh, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, and we were going to talk about this today because, you know, we, you mentioned a minute ago, integrated systems. You've done more in the realm of seeing uh, Lean and Six Sigma integrated. For better or for worse, most of the work I've done is really within the Lean uh, methodology as opposed to the combination of the two. But, you know, I think we share some perspectives or I don't know if uh, I would say annoyances. I don't know if you would say that, but uh, maybe we'll call it lessons learned. Like what are, what are some of the things that you've seen um, that don't sit right with you or, or could be done better as people are combining Lean and Six Sigma out there? Great, great question. Yeah, so this is obviously from my perspective and my years experience. I don't think any company on the planet should attempt to do any Six Sigma without Lean. 
That's fact. And if anyone wants to call me to the mat, anybody on this podcast, guess what? You can reach me on LinkedIn, <laughs> challenge me any day, and we can have this conversation. But no company, I repeat, no company, business, nonprofit, or whatever, should do any Six Sigma without doing the lean first. And this is coming from 20 plus years experience. And I'll tell you why I say this. Here's, a, here's the reason why I say this. Lean is your stabilizer. I'll give you a poor example. I walk into a company that, uh, that uh, say they, uh, say Amazon. I walk in Amazon. And what they do is people order stuff and then they get it. Now the picking system is gonna be really key. So if I have a picking system that has a bunch of people running around with carts on wheels, and they say, you know what, um, you know, we got to go pick zone 15. They got to run down with a cart with, uh, and pick up something from pick zone 15. Then they got to run to pick zone 25 or whatever. You might say, well, we would like to reduce the tack time, or we like to be able to get people to get their parts they're ordered quicker. Well, you don't have to use a whole lot of statistics yeah. to figure out one is farther than the other. Right. Co-locate these things or whatever. So whenever you get into the world of Six Sigma, and I, like I said, anybody can challenge me on this podcast. Six Sigma is really about looking at statistics with probability to understand how to optimize to a target. But if you're in chaos, it doesn't make sense to optimize chaos. Mm-hmm. What it makes sense is to stabilize and then optimize. So in that situation where they're all over the place, first thing I would do is try to stabilize a situation by putting picks. And by the way, this goes back to my missing, wrong, and damage project. One of the things I realized is there was an unbalanced line. The line that they were picking from, the first person picked three parts, the next person picked seven parts, the next person picked... Uh, 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 you know, two parts, and that goes back to theory of constraints, right there. TOC, right there. Right. If you go, you go after the biggest constraint. That's not six sigma. You can't claim that. That's theory of constraints. Mm-hmm. It's close to the lean. So what I'm saying to you is, my my project that I was certified on, I say almost eighty to ninety percent was lean. But then I'll tell you where the statistics came in. The statistics came in when we started looking at over time. Was my uh, was my improvement significant? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the percentage of defects this month, the percentage of defects the next. So we looked at this for a whole nine months, week to week, day to day, and you can see statistically we were, we got an eighty eight percent reduction from uh, from this missing, wrong, and damage project over time. Yeah. Each iteration of improvement, I got a ten to twenty percent reduction. And you can clearly take a line of sight and see that after the activity, the actual levels went down. So the really the whole Six Sigma part of it really was looking at, you know, uh, looking at uh, some probabilities, looking at some correlations. We did do some correlation analysis, not really within the uh, framework of lean, mm-hmm. but really the physical improvements were lean improvements. I didn't really use Minitab or any of that right. to really get that project done. So, so what is my point? So going back to what you said, how do they work together? First step, step one, any company, understand clearly your mission and vision and yep. understand what your stakeholders and your customers want over time. A lot of companies don't even have their mission and vision correct 
and they're trying to deliver operational excellence on something they don't understand. Or, or, or people don't, and people in the company don't know what that mission and vision is, or they don't agree with it, or, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a, exactly. a pretty fundamental thing. Exactly. So if there's a misalignment there, you're going to fail. Yeah. Step two, you got to have a clear path of action to take your mission, mission, your mission and vision and turn your mission and vision into something actionable. And one of the cool things you can use is Hoshin planning. I'm a big fan of doing your SWOT analysis mm -hmm. and following up with a Hoshin plan. I've done that for many years with great success with the executives. I, I really think every executive group should start with SWOT, strength, weakness, opportunities, and threat, and then move straight into a Hoshin plan that gives you your one-year strategy and your three- to five-year strategy, and it breaks it down into themes and projects. Based on the themes and projects, then you look at the key process variables that will allow those projects to be successful. And then you do a quick assessment of where you are with those themes and projects. And if the projects are a matter of optimization, where they say, you know what, we're consistently getting 10, 10 de uh, between 5 to 25% defects in this area, we like to reduce it to maybe 5%. Now you're talking in the statistical world. Sure. Guess what? Maybe I could look at lean as a precursor to Six Sigma, but this probably mm -hmm. might turn out to be a Six Sigma project, but I'll do a precursor lean check. But then you'll get that one project when they say, oh, uh, we can't uh, deliver uh, this to a customer on time. Soon as you say we can't deliver this on time, that means that we don't clearly understand a lot of what's going on. And if you don't understand what a lot of what's going on, most times you're unstable and you need to lean it out mm -hmm. to take the waste out. And then you can put a goal around it because you might say, well, the customer wants this done in 15 days. How long is it taking us now? We're taking between 10 and 75. Matter of fact, this gives me an example. When I was at Storage Tech, we actually had this thing called Service Stand-Up. We had one of our major, I don't even tell you what, it's American Airlines. So you know what? We can tear a plane down and put a plane back together in 30 days. Why does it take you guys between, and we had a lot of variation, between 30 days to almost, I think it was three or four months to get servers stood up. And server stand-up is basically they order a server and we put all the software on it and they get it. And they might order like 50 at a pop or whatever. We weren't doing it. We mm. couldn't do it. They can take a whole airplane, tear it down, and build it back in 30 days but we couldn't even uh, or you know bring in an electronic box. So look at the variance mark between 30 and and 90 days. That's you know a range of 60 something days. So the point was why is there so much variance? Right. Well you might say imagine throwing six sigma at that. Well let's look at that from a six sigma perspective. You're going to do a process map, you're going to do uh, a side park, you're going to start collecting data. I'm going to be like that lady you talked about. I'll be out there collecting data for about two or three months, see how it's performing the last three years. We know how it's performed the last three years. It sucked. Yeah. It was terrible. So that's not helping me get to the root of the problem, Mark, right. looking at three years' data. You know what's going to help me? By walking what we're doing today, doing the value stream map, seeing what we're doing today, and taking the non-value-add activities out, shrink this thing down, and then we can make it a smart system. So to summarize, where is everything going, Mark? It's going integrated continuous improvement. And integrated continuous improvement means 
Six Sigma, Lean, ITIL, BPM, Business Process Management, Ketna Trago, all, all these things are going to be in one system, and it's going to be called Smart Continuous Improvement. I just made that term up, by the way. It's going to be <laughs> Smart Continuous Improvement. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to trademark that. And basically what Smart and Continuous Improvement is, a continuous improvement that has an adaptive filter built in to meet the needs of an ever-changing work environment. Yeah. And well, that's, I'm going to sit on that. That's my right. final well, part. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, I wouldn't disagree with you about starting with Lean. Um, I, you know, I, I think Six Sigma plays a role in an organization trying to improve and solve problems. There are you know, statistical methods that are, are undeniable. Um, you know, I say this as an engineer with more statistical training than I have, you know, quote unquote, Six Sigma training. But the, the thing I get grumbly about is when people talk about integrating the two approaches, what's often described as Lean Six Sigma sounds like a 50-50 partnership, if you will. And I know people who've said, well, I, I wanted to learn Lean, but I decided to go to Lean Six Sigma training because I would learn both. And I think, unfortunately, that's a faulty assumption. And what happens is they learn 90 or 95 percent Six Sigma, and then they learn some limited or superficial lean tools. And, and that's not necessarily what they wanted. And I would argue that's not necessarily what's most helpful. So I, I was wondering not to put you on the spot to de defend the Six Sigma world, but I'm asking you, what are your thoughts about that balance or what what do you see happening out there in terms of the percentages of of what's being taught i mean i hear you saying start with lean that maybe too many people are starting with six sigma are they overcomplicating things what what do you see out there yeah definitely uh you can hear my thoughts on it like i said uh i would never start any project without lean it's just based on my experience but as far as instruction goes i am an instructor i do teach out of fact, I teach globally. I'll be in the um, Middle East here in the next couple of months. Uh -huh. uh, but basically, um, from my perspective, you're right. If you look at the majority of the training programs, which I have seen a lot of them, they're pretty much 80-20, I'd say, or 90-10, where uh -huh. it's very heavy on the Six Sigma side. Right. <clears throat> and to be honest with you, from my perspective, I think it's very heavy on the statistical side. Uh -huh. And they, they actually get within the training in the analyze phase – Almost 80% of the analyze phase is looking at probability and statistics, looking at, you know, population parameters and looking at sample statistics and looking at the theory of it, which is, I, I think is incredibly wasteful, if you ask me. A lot of times the people, they're like, they have the Michael Dell kind of a thought process. Uh, just show me the money. They don't really need to know the theory behind, you know, why a two-sample T test works. All they need to know is they can do a two-sample T to be able to, you know, see the difference between two means. But they don't need to be able to understand through, theoretically where the standard uh, student T uh, distribution came from. Yeah. They don't need to, They don't need to know that. But you know, the F distribution, they don't need to know where that came from. They don't need to know. You know, uh, there's a lot of theory that's discussed in there that a green and black belt never use and, and don't really need to know on a daily basis. So to your point, is there, you know, uh, some imbalance in what's taught? I say there is, I agree. And I think it should be uh, uh, more of a 50-50 exchange because there's a lot of things in a lean toolkit 
that never get talked about mm-hmm. in your Six Sigma courses, you know, a lot of it gets left out. And well, it's because, yeah. not because they don't want to, it's just they don't have time. Well, right, I, I, I would add, you know, the, the other thing that irks me is that they don't get beyond the toolkit to talk about the management system, the philosophy, the culture of lean. And, you know, I think people inadvertently really diminish lean when they make it out to be nothing but spaghetti diagrams and 5S. You know, there's far more to it than that. Right. But that's all they know. Remember, you, you, your your perception is going to be based on the, the population's mm-hmm. understanding. And if everyone's going through these Lean Six Sigma training courses and all the courses are saying 10% lean, 10% lean, and you only need to know 5S and SMED and, you know, OEE every now and then, and they're going to water this thing down and say, you just need to know a little bit of it, but hang in the world of Six Sigma, that's where the action is. And I think and that that really, like you said, it diminishes the true value of what lean is. And be honest with you, and I'm just gonna, you know, be be straight with you. The majority of the green belt training that I do, the first two projects that people work on, almost 100% lean. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, I'll, I'll give you an example. I went into a bank in Saudi Arabia. They said, Tyrone, we like to be able to complete the loan process a lot quicker. Okay, so that's cycle time. They want to do it quicker. So one of the things they looked at was instead of having their documentation uh, physically brought in, they said, why don't we do e-docs? E-docs, well, no, the reason why they got to that idea is they did a value stream map and they did a process map and they did an affinity diagram and they did uh, some, uh, what else? They did a SIPOC analysis and they were able to determine there were some steps in there that were non-value-add. Just by taking out the non-value-add step of physical documentation and signatures, they were able to reduce the cycle time by 20 to 30%. And they got a win. So that's a prime example of looking at some of the simple tools within Lean, but there's a lot more. And remember, this is from a Six Sigma training. This is from a Lean Six Sigma training, but the first project that came out of it was pretty much lean. They didn't really do any stats. Right. You see what I'm saying, Mark? Mm-hmm. So so the level of complexity really drives uh, the, the tool you use. Right. And yep. so, so that's why I said I want to go with my term. You need to have a smart, adaptive continuous improvement rather than selling a one-size-fits-all. Hey, I'm right. selling lean. Hey, I'm right. selling lean. And the reason why that's true, Mark, is because of evolution. Yeah. A lot of people don't mm-hmm. realize that continuous improvement has evolved from the steam engine to electricity to systems and programs like TQM and Dimming and Six Sigma. These are systematic programs for getting continuous improvement. Now we're in what they call level four evolution of continuous improvement, which is smart systems, which is IT connected to people, connected to processes and connected to resources and it's all adaptive that's because of the environment back in the 80s there was no IT or there was no real internet so as that internet became more integrated then you had to have an adaptive improvement that will allow you to uh, 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 and manage that integration and now that's why BPM is popular we didn't get a chance to talk about it 
But that's one of my key areas I'm working on now is business process management, where we look at the integration between human to human processes. We got system to human processes. We got uh, system to system processes. All those processes need to be integrated to come up with one holistic system that can be adaptive to the needs of the customer. Yeah. If you just do the human to human piece, which is what we used to do back in the day before the internet, that's great. But if you haven't adapted to the human to system piece, you're behind in the times. Yeah. And and acronym check for those who aren't familiar with it. And, and as we uh, wrap up here, BPM means? Business process management. Okay. And and people can, can Google that along with some of the other terms if uh, – if this is new to them and they can dig deeper. But Tyrone, uh, it's always, always fun talking to you. You know, there's so much that we delve into. Maybe we could do another podcast down the road, take a deeper dive into one of these topics. And, you know, if people have comments or feedback, they can, you can go and post a comment on the blog post page for this episode or, or Tyrone, how can people find you online? You mentioned LinkedIn. Is that the best way? Yeah. The best way is to find me on LinkedIn. I, I really, uh, uh, pride myself of staying connected there, and I, I got a, I got over what is it, five thousand, you know, relationships or connections. And uh, anyone listening to the podcast, I'd love to have you connect with me. If you have any questions about anything that I said, or if you're in- interested in any instruction, or even if you want to discuss some of the topics further, I'm open for it. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, hey, once again, Mark. Thank you for having me. As you can tell, I get excited. You can hear it in my voice. <laughs> yes. I have a lot of, you can't fake what I'm doing. I can't just wake up and fake continuous improvement. No. I live this. I'm excited by it. And I'm very honored to be here. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks, Tyrone. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.